Good morning, Westmount, and I invite you to just take your copy of God's Word, turn to Romans 9 with me, and let's just continue that expression of worship together. Romans 9, that's where we've been, Romans 9. If you're visiting with us, another warm welcome to you. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, you'll see one right in front of you. Uh, Grab that, please take it, follow along with us, Romans chapter 9, that's where we are in this blessed study. We pick up where we left off last Lord's Day in this chapter, Romans 9. We're in the middle of this ninth chapter where Paul is defending this thesis. First look in verse 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. This is in response, verse 6, is in response to Israel's enduring unbelief. That is an enduring reality, an unbelief in spite of this. Look just up at verse 4 and 5. It says this, They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So the platform for the argument here in this section, Romans 9, 10, and 11, is this. What are we to make of God's promises in light of the enduring rebellion and rejection by his own privileged people? That's the question, right? What are we to make of that? And More to say about this later as well. What are we to make of that even up to today? The rejection that Israel has for the Messiah. What are we to make of that? And here's the implication that many would say has the promise of God, the promises of God, is the word of God failed? The answer, as it is with all the questions really, the answers as we just sang to all those questions In God's word, time and time again, the answer comes back to what? Who is God? That's the answer, right? Who is God? That is the answer that frames all other answers, such as, what is his plan? Who is God? Who are we? Who is God? What of Israel? Who is God? What of the Gentiles? Who is God? What if God's will and our responsibility answer, who is God? Who is God? Our questions often reveal our faith, do they not? Have you found that? The questions you have are a window into the faith in your own heart. Christmas is quickly descending on us, so let's go to two individuals that we think of at Christmas. When we think about questions in light of revelation, we may not understand. We may have plain questions, right? But often they're a masked unbelief. You remember Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, and his questions before God. Of course, God had just revealed in Luke 1, right, that Elizabeth would bear a son, his wife, right? He shall call his name John, and he goes on to say all the wonderful things John will do. He'll make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Listen to Zechariah's response to this amazing thing. Zechariah said to the angel, Luke 1.18, How shall I know this? For I am an old man. My wife is advanced in years. He has questions about that. 
And the angel answered him, I'm in, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Why? And here's a window into Zechariah's heart. Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Belief is very different to understanding, isn't it? You believe. Do you need to understand all the things to believe? No. Do you believe or not? That's contrasted, of course, with another individual we consider at Christmas. It may be, and I pray for many, we ask in faith. Faith that seeks understanding, not understanding seeking faith. We ask in faith like Mary to understand. Remember this, Luke 1, 34, when she received news, right? And just consider with me just a moment how much more spectacular it would be for a virgin to receive that news than one old and advanced in years. Mary said in response to the fact that she would conceive, right, by the Holy Spirit, she said, how will this be since I'm a virgin? Many, many nuances there we can't know in a text like this, but we do know, we do know that she asked in faith because she doesn't receive the same response that Zechariah. So what does this reveal to us as we set our hearts now on the questions we have for Romans 9? There is a way that we can ask questions, and I pray this morning you're asking in faith, seeking understanding. So let's embark together on this. Look at verse 19 with me. We're just going to carry on. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory? For vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed, he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel... Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out a sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning, all of us, Lord, that you would just help us in faith to understand. Lord, we submit our minds and our hearts to you, to do as you will. Lord, ready us now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. The riches of his glory. That is, as you see it there, God's glory made known, and such is the purpose here. And in this text, we'll see presented four riches of God's glory that continue to answer the question, has the word of God failed? What of God's plan and promises? That's what we're going to see. Let's begin now with the first. The first, which is, if you will, found in verses 19 to 21, and it's this, God's authority. God's authority. 
You know, ever since the garden, we have wrestled with the reality of authority. Is that not true? Since the garden, we wrestle with authority. And not just authority generally. Many do struggle with authority generally, and that's a whole other issue. But many do not. Is that not true? Many have no issue with the authority of a lower degree at work. They're very compliant. Certainly, as we've seen with government, they have no trouble falling in line. Many people have no problems with compliance. So when we talk about authority biblically, that's not what we're talking about, a disposition to just submit yourselves to authority. No, humanity's struggle, and it's in every human being, has been with the authority of God. That's the struggle, isn't it? That God would be supreme authority. That is his sovereign rule and reign and right over all things. And, and, and that means your soul, right? We really struggle with that. Let him reign over the heavens. Yes, let him make cosmic decisions, for sure. Grant him rights to govern the weather, the birds, even those around us. Yes, but let's not get carried away and say God has full authority over my soul. Easy. Easy. He is creator. He made me. Yes. Psalm 24 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Yes and yes again. But let it never be said that I do not have a voice. Let it never be said. God is big, sure, but I have a say. Yes, God has rights, but so do I. Created rights. You hear that in many quarters, and it sure fits nicely with the spirit of the age, doesn't it? I mean, it's right out of the spirit of the age. And here's the question, beloved saints at Westmount. Does it mesh with what Creator says? That's the question we always ask. Every Sunday morning, every Wednesday night, every Wednesday morning, ladies, every Saturday morning, men, in every domain, does it mesh with what Creator says? Right? That has to be our enduring question. Well, let's read verses 19 to 20 again. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? This is sovereign God. For who can resist his will? And verse 20 cannot be more plain, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? These verses recall flow out of verse 18. Let's be reminded of verse 18 again. Here's the truth. So then he, sovereign God, has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You can imagine, maybe for some of you, you have questions you want to answer back to God in light of that. Really? He has sovereign determination on every human soul? That's what the Creator says. Right? That's what it says. That's what it says, the sovereignty of God, the sovereign mercy of God. Praise him. Praise him. And last week, where the question of injustice that may be coming out of those verses in verse 14, remember we said this, it's off the mark. It's not a question of justice, right? It's a question of mercy. The issue is not justice. It's mercy here in verse 19. Here, the question betrays not just an understanding of the applicability of God's attributes, but simply it betrays an understanding of who God is, period, doesn't it? This just betrays an understanding of our God, right? Paul does not say, so what does he not say as we begin here? He doesn't say, why does he still find fault? Don't you know 
Uh, Genesis 3, don't you remember what I taught you in the first chapter in Romans 1 and all the fault of man? He doesn't say that, does he? Paul does not say who can resist his will. Oh yeah, remember those verses where Pharaoh hardened his own heart and and don't you remember about the bondage of the will we read about in chapter 5? And he doesn't say that, does he? Paul doesn't respond that way. We want him to respond that way, but he doesn't. In fact, Paul does not offer a response that has anything to do with man at all. Did you notice that? He doesn't respond with anything that has to do with man. Beloved, let's not miss this. Man is not in these responses or reason here. If we miss this, we'll miss the whole thing. We always want to insert ourselves into something, don't we? But we're not in here. Instead, man, if anything, is rebuked. Verse 20, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? First off, such questioning of God may indeed reveal an authority issue. God is not God to you, at least not in the way that he should be. You might be claiming God, declaring God, but he's not God to you in the way that God defines. Maybe, maybe. Maybe God is a God of your own understanding. That not only that God of your own understanding, you might feel, has to answer all your questions. Like a genie in a bottle or a vending machine, every question, God must answer it. God has to answer them, you would say, according to your own understanding. I have understanding, and when that is satisfied, then I will have faith. Maybe that's you this morning. And, and you know this because you've heard this outside these walls, haven't you? Well, I just don't see it that way, and until I put my finger in his side, and until I see some supernatural thing, only then I will believe. You've heard that, right? That is understanding seeking faith, and it needs rebuke. The problem here we see, as Paul says, is who are we to answer back to God? Let's let that sit for a moment. Who are we to answer back to God Almighty? Whatever he says, whatever it is, the created say, okay. Do you see how we're just lost in a posture? And every, every molecule of oxygen around you is causing you to move in a different direction. That's why we struggle with texts like this. Because we are taught, we are indoctrinated to question and mistrust everything at such a young age. Every authority, every bit of truth, we've deconstructed truth completely. We have no sense of authority. So when we come to Almighty God, we say, God, you need to answer my questions. It was Job's problem in capsule, and God's response to him was, okay, Job, let's sit down. We're going to go through this. Now, here, here is, no, what did he say? Who are you? Were you there when the mountain goats gave birth? Were you there when I installed literally the scaffolding of the universe? Were you there, Job? Were you there? No. Similarly, Paul goes on to remind us of the context of our relationship to God. Important, important. Look at verse 20. Well, what is molded? Say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter, look, no right over the clay, no right to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use? And another for dishonorable use. You might have heard this referred to as potter's rights. Think of a potter. Think of it truly. Let's follow this text and think of the potter at the wheel creating. The design, the purpose, the output of the clay creations is all whose authority? 
What you're not thinking of right now is the potter sitting at the wheel like, what do you think? Does this look good? Should I put a handle here? What do you think about that? Right? It's lunacy, isn't it? But that's how we behave. Potter's rights. The potter creates according to his sovereign will over the lump of clay. Now, Paul does not just use this picture because it's logical, and we've just seen it is, but it's scriptural. Yes, those familiar with their Old Testament, both Jew and Gentile, by the way, in that time, would have understood this picture and more what it referred to. The potter, the clay, referring to the sovereign right and authority of God. God over Israel first, and also the nations. That was always the case in the Old Testament. This is the picture and the testimony throughout the Psalms and the prophets. Psalm 2, we sing this here, a psalm about the nation's response to Yahweh. Raging instead of kissing the sun. This in Psalm 2 verse 9. You, the Lord's anointed Christ, shall break them. Who are they? The kings of the earth. With a rod of iron and dash them in pieces. Listen, like a potter's vessel. Same picture in Israel, by the way. Same thing. So not just for the nations in sovereign God's hand that get dashed in Israel. They're judged here as we listen to Isaiah 29. For this backwards thinking that we see often between potter and clay, Isaiah 29, 16 says this, You, this is in judgment to Israel, you turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing should be made to save its maker? He did not make me or the thing formed say of him who formed it. He has no understanding. The audacity. The nations, again, pictured as clay, as we continue in Isaiah, just some meditations there, as Yahweh comforts them in chapter 41, verse 25. You can just mark that. Listen to this. I stirred up one from the north, and he has come from the rising of the sun, and he shall call upon my name. He shall trample on the rulers as on mortar, and then listen, as the potter treads clay. Still in Isaiah... This is the passage that Dave read for us this morning. And probably you're connecting the dots, right, to the potter imagery you heard this morning. He says this directly, 45 verse 9. Woe to him, now listen, who strives with him who formed him. That's what it is when we answer back to God, isn't it? Striving with him who made us. A pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. And even later yet in Isaiah, listen to this prayer of comfort, a prayer for God's mercy. Isaiah 64, read these few verses. Verse 6, we have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There's no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us. And have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. And then verse 8. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. And note this in a prayer of submission. We are the clay. And you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. This is the prophet Jeremiah. Maybe you recall Jeremiah 18. In fact, we can turn there. Jeremiah 18. The prophet Jeremiah employed this pottery imagery most famously in Jeremiah 18. And he did this, and we're turning here because you're going to see a right response, and you're going to see other things along with the sovereignty of the potter here. Imagery that we will see very clear over the nations, and note the response. So let's look at this. 
18. We're going to read verses 1 to 11. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my word. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to do. Do you see those potter's rights? Verse 5, Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do it. Now therefore say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you. Return every one from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds. What do we not see here of Israel? I am the potter, you are the clay, so you know this wickedness you're engaged in, well, you can't really help it. I'm the potter, you're the clay. That's how I made you. You don't see that, do you? Look at verse 8. First of the nations. Of the nations, if that nation, the same potter, not just making Israel, but the nations, if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, that's volitional. If they turn, what I will relent. Then verse 11, he turns now to Israel, to Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, I'm shaping disaster against you, devising a plan against you. And then this, the volition, return every one of you from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds. Do you see that? The sovereign potter, the responsible clay. Jeremiah 18, very, very clear. Again, We mentioned this a couple weeks back. God is sovereign over all, every soul, every nation, but that sovereignty never lessens human responsibility. The prophet's endearing call is what? Israel return, Israel repent. Now one more stop before we head back to Romans. Turn to Joshua 11. Joshua 11. So we, and beloved, here it is. It's for those in faith to just receive and understand this is all over the Bible. The context here is the conquest, the second generation entering the land of promise. And we read this, as they enter the land, look very carefully. Chapter 11, we'll start in verse 18. This is they're heading north for the conquest. Verse 18, Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle. Why? Verse 20, for it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy, but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. Turn to Joshua 24. Same second generation, the covenant is renewed. Joshua turns on the cusp at the end of this book. He does not say, you know what? It is already written of you, shaped of you. There's nothing more for me to say. Just go live this out fatally and deterministically. No, he says this in Joshua 24, 
14, 15, some of you have this in your home. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Make volitional choices rightly. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whom land you will dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It was the Lord's doing through and through to harden the hearts of the nations. And here very clearly Joshua says, you, Israelite, must choose today whom you will serve. So clear. Now back to Romans 9. Now Paul is going to get to Israel's responsibility. He's going to do that in chapter 9, verse 30. We're not there yet. He will deal with that. But again, he's got other matters that he wants to teach us about. For now, the point is God's sovereign authority. Let's look again at verse 21. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use, another for dishonorable use? Simply, this text is just talking about use. Formation by the potter speaks nothing about the created's response. And again, if anything, there's rebuke. This is just so clear. Beloved, God has the only right and authority to decide place and purpose. Only God. That's what sovereignty means, isn't it? That's what sovereignty means. And we have no right to answer back. Imagine, with me, many of you know this motif, imagine in the kingdoms of old, right? Under the kings of old. Could you imagine in medieval times a subject answering back to the king? What would happen? You know what would happen. You don't do that to the sovereign king. You don't answer back to him. Well, how much more the sovereign king of the universe? Listen, let us not forget our posture before the God of all authority. He is sovereign Lord. We are not. We are not. And praise God, he's not just sovereign and just. Let's continue to keep everything we've learned. As we saw last week, he's not just sovereign. He's sovereign in mercy, right? The potter, but a merciful potter. Praise God for that. Okay, such as the potter's rights and God's authority. Next, God's wrath. Look at verse 22. God's wrath. It says this, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he's prepared beforehand for glory? The potter, our great God, is not a capricious or whimsical God like the Greek gods, right, or the Roman gods. He's nothing like that, behaving cavalier and and whimsical. No, his decision on how to fashion vessels has purpose, and that's what we see here. That's what we learn in this text, intention with everything by a sovereign God. So the potter has every right, firstly, to form vessels of honor. Now let me ask you something. Who protests with the fact that God creates vessels of honor? No one, right? Have you ever heard someone protest that, wait a minute, why are you creating vessels of honor and mercy? No one does that. That exposes something else too. And notice Paul does not need to explain the purpose for the vessels of honor, does he? Because you have the entire Bible that describes that. Be holy for I am holy, right? Be a light to the nations. Go and live me. Now what Paul elaborates on 
are the vessels formed for dishonorable use because that's our struggle. And what the verse teaches us is that there is a purpose in God's plan with them. We're just going to stay in the verse. That's what the teaching is. That the vessels for dishonorable use, God has a plan for. Such vessels of wrath, as they're called in verse 22, are prepared for destruction. And more, they were not instantly judged. Note the mercy here. Or destroyed. The condemned never are instantly destroyed. Do you remember the first condemned, Adam and Eve? Were they instantly smited upon sin? No. There was merciful bearing with for another purpose. As we find out in Genesis 3.15, to bring a seed of salvation. They're not instantly judged. No, think about this. The condemned never are. They, they emerge, the condemned in humanity, emerge from the womb condemned already, and God allows them mercifully to live a life. However, they continue to live a life where they demonstrate sin, don't they? And practice sin. And they continue to and are given over all while God patiently endures. And that patient endurance, as verse 22 says, demonstrated because God desires to show his wrath and make known his power. Now let's consider that for a moment. First, God desires to show his wrath, which is just as much one of God's attributes. Fundamentals classes is what you learned, right? Jeremy taught us that. God's wrath, just as much an attribute of God. We may not like it, but it doesn't make it not an attribute of God, right? God's wrath, just as much an attribute with his love and his mercy and holiness. So just as God intends himself to be known in those perfections revealed in his creation, Romans 1.20, so too his desires to reveal and make known his wrath. This makes sense. God's wrath, remember what we learned, demonstrates and upholds the majestic holiness and righteousness of God. That's what God's wrath does. Second, see here the purpose of God in his sovereign will with respect to good and evil. God's patience is revealed and manifest against his forbearance and rebellion. You see that? Think of the Exodus account we looked at last week and Bill took us to this morning already. And even when we think about the events unfolding in Exodus, you can't help but have in your mind the forbearance of God, particularly against Pharaoh. Right? Ten times, ten plagues. God did not destroy Pharaoh immediately, but with each of Pharaoh's rejections, wrath was made known. Right? Think of the account. Wrath unleashed and made known with each plague after plague after plague. And not only the plague, but the demonstration of God's power. Right? Consider, how do we know the power of God, not just in creation, but the power of God in judgment and in destruction? Well, one way we know in the Bible is with Pharaoh being raised up, don't we? That's how we know God is powerful, not just in creation, Genesis 1, but in the Exodus, Exodus 7 and on. That's how we know. And it's no different. That wrath revealed is no different today. Turn to Romans 1. You're in there. Turn to Romans 1. It's no different today with wrath revealed and its purpose. Remember, the context of the gospel Not only in your life, but in this letter, the righteousness of God against the unrighteousness of men, the same wrath of God revealed. Look at 118. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Not just Pharaoh, all the rebels. Very clear. The wrath of God, remember, is God's divine, perfect 
personal righteousness, or his righteous indignation, we should say, towards human sinfulness. We learned about this here when we studied chapter 1. And God's wrath is not only the broker of God's righteousness, and it's needed for that, but God's wrath is revealed and shown so that God's power is also revealed, as you saw in the Exodus account with Pharaoh. The patience with each plague within a purpose of cumulatively displaying God's power. And again, let's be clear, so it is with other small p pharaohs. God endures as wrath is shown. God suspends, speaking of mercy, God suspends a due, just, immediate retribution in order to show who he is. Wrath revealed, and as we've commented in the the vessel's own life, is given over, and also by the mercy of God, and ultimately by the mercy of God, that, that some of those small pea pharaohs would turn and repent. Amazing. But here we see more purpose here. There's even more. This is the blessing of studying texts like there's more. Look at verse 23, back to Romans 9. And you get it with the final in order to here, the, final, the, the, the cap of purpose. In order to, God desired to show his wrath, make known his power, enduring with patience, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Here you go. In order to. That is not just purpose, but ultimate purpose. Vessels of wrath endured, not just for wrath revealed, but for this end, that the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy would be made known. Not just that wrath would be made known, but what? Mercy. So many want to camp out and keep God as some kind of Old Testament caricature, just throwing around lightning bolts, judging God. God must uphold his righteousness, but let it never be said, Old Testament or new, yesterday or today, God is a God of mercy. God is a God of mercy. And note that Paul says, vessels of mercy we are, Christian. Verse 23, prepared beforehand. Note that language. That should be a cue. You wait, wait a minute. That's eternity past for glory. That's precisely what we saw at the end of chapter 8. Let your eyes scroll over to 8. Number 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Let's get a location here. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, think eternity past, beforehand, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. God's wrath shown in order that God's glory would be made known. Do you see that? Do you follow the trail there? God's wrath shown in order that God's glory would be made known. This is the work of God. That's it. The Old Testament itself prepares us for the idea that God would show mercy to those who were least expected to receive it. Remember, he'd only save a remnant from Israel, and as we find out later, a collection of Gentiles too. Think of this, the Jew first, the remnant to lavish glory on. This is the summative point of the prophets, the Jew first. God endures a rebellious greater Israel with wrath storing up for them in order to show the riches of his glory to the remnant that is truly Israel. That's it. We make a closing observation on this point. Listen, 
However, one is purposed by the potter for honorable or dishonorable use, whether for Israel or the Israel within Israel, whether Moses or Pharaoh, whether Jew or Gentile, wheat or tare, they're both objects of God's mercy, temporally or finally. And their purpose under the sovereignty of God is ultimately serving to make God's glory known. That is the end, right, of mercy, is glory. Christian, our salvation is a blessed go along with the glory of God. But it's not the ultimate. God's glory is mercy to glory, wrath to mercy to glory. Beautiful. God's glory made known in the salvation of the vessels of mercy set against the vessels of mounting wrath. Yes, Westmount, the riches of his glory. For vessels who are plucked from the destination that the entire lump of clay deserves. Can we think about it that way? This entire lump of clay is hell-bound. And yet we're plucked from God's wrath. We've seen the riches of his glory here, God's authority, God's authority, or sorry, God's authority and God's wrath. God's people, God's people. Paul continues in verse 24. says this with some reminders on the vessels of mercy, by the way. Verse 24, he says this, Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Who are the vessels of mercy? Paul says, us. At least in this verse, us whom he has called. And here he widens his scope for a moment. Romans 9, 10, 11, of course. He's specifically talking about God's faith to the remnant. But here he pauses to remind us, that he's pulling the camera back to, for a moment, the Jew first, but also the Greek. The called are the called out ones from the faithful remnant in Israel to the called out ones among the nations. Look at verse 24, the Gentiles, the called out from 116, the Jew first and also the Greek. This is us, those of faith found in ancient Israel right to those of faith found today among the nations. Now, before we turn to verse 25, let's be reminded that God's plan and program has always ultimately been to call out people of faith from every nation. Do you remember Romans 4? Turn back to Romans 4. I pray these things have not been lost as we continue through Romans. Romans 4, verse 11, speaking of Abraham, it says, He, Abraham, received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Why? Well, the purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. So not just faithful Israel, the Gentile as well, the uncircumcised of faith. Go to verse 16. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace. And be guaranteed to all his offspring. And who would that be, Paul? Not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Note that, same all. Beloved, this is not a novel plan. Of course, it was embedded, and we know this in the original covenant. Remember with me, Genesis 12. This is just recap, right, in Genesis 12. You know this. Genesis 12, 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. That's one, Jew first. 
And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Where? I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I'll curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Do you see that? At the very beginning. So God's plan, the word of God that has not failed, Romans 9, 6, has always been about the Jew first and also the Greek. It was a promise to Israel first, but within that promise to that nation was baked in a promise that would reach called out ones of every nation. That has always been the plan, and Paul knows that. He knows it. Consider if we were to think more in the Old Testament, Isaiah 56, just listen. Isaiah 56, 1 to 8. Listen carefully. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness. For soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Familiar language, isn't it? Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. And then listen, verse 3. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. Perish the thought. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I'm a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me, and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. Wow! I will give them an everlasting name and shall not be cut off. One imagines the Jew really wrestling with this. Verse 6, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants... Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not provane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain. That was reserved just for the Jew only. And make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others, not just faithful Israel, The remnant, I'll gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. This has always been the plan. What's more, if we were to read Isaiah, and time again betrays us, Isaiah 19, verses 24 to 25, we see the same thing we see here. The prophets applying labels that were given to Israel to to this essence and sense of a foreign people, a remnant in of itself of the nations that would gather to Yahweh. In fact, in Isaiah 19.25, you have Egypt and Assyria with names like my people. In that day, they will be called my people. The Jew first, but also the Greek, always the ultimate plan of God. And now in Gentile Rome, as Paul writes to us, with the fullness of time come, Paul does not, and hear me, he doesn't reinterpret what the prophet said, but he's now going to apply it. This is the word of God made fully known. Right? Now let's look and consider specifically. Verse 25. This is what he does. As indeed he says in Hosea, another prophet, those who are not my people I will call my people, and her who is not beloved I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Every Jew would know those references, both in verse 25 and 26, taken from the book of Hosea. Chapter 3 and chapter 1, Hosea 2, or sorry, Hosea 2.23 and Hosea 1.10, respectively. That's where they're taken from. And they were prophecies relating to Israel, and specifically the northern kingdom of Israel. And you know what Hosea was called to do? We studied Hosea a few years ago. Take an unfaithful wife, bear with her, and then in spite of her unfaithfulness, purchase her and redeem her and bring her back. 
Well, that was not just a physical picture of God calling back his people, the faithful remnant, but within that picture and that prophecy was a prefiguring of even more calling of people that were not my people that would become my people. God not just calling those once not my people as the ten northern tribes, but God calling those once not my people among the nations. Yes, this was always the plan for God's people, the Jew first, also the Greek. In Hosea, it was directly in reference to Israel, and it remains that, and their recall as God's people. But here, Paul does not replace Israel. Look what he does. This is majestic. He applies this Israelite prophecy of the not-my-people in Israel to include the not-my-people among the nations. Stunning what he does here. And this, embedded in a passage or chapters where he talks about the word of God, has not failed. How encouraging this would be. This is the riches of his glory, Westmount, that Israel would be called back. And that alongside a called-back faithful remnant of Israel, Alongside that, you would have Gentiles, always not my people. That in that day, they would be called what? My people. Staggering to have those ancient names applied to Gentiles. As has been said many times, this is astonishing, if not surprising, for the riches of glory. Because most Jews expected a remnant of Gentiles to be saved, right? The Jews would have said, oh yeah, maybe... Just a few of those Gentiles would be saved. Nowhere would they have thought the remnant would be within Israel. Such is the nature of God's people, a Gentile majority alongside a remnant of Israel. Riches of his glory. And that remnant in Israel is where Paul turns to close this section. He puts the camera back. He zooms back in now, finally with God's preservation, our last point. Look at verse 27. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. In a survey of Old Testament passages in this section of Romans 9 to 11, Paul now turns to the book of Isaiah. We've turned there, of course, many times this morning, one sense already. Now Paul officially does and directly. So let's turn with him there. Go to Isaiah 10. And just to give us context as we dip into this reference, let's get the framing right here. Again, Christmas is coming upon us, so we're very familiar with Isaiah 9, verse 6, on many Christmas cards, right? A child is born, verse 6. Well, the context of that child born, right, that ruler coming, is on the heels of chapter 8, oncoming fear of Assyria, right? Imposing looming in chapter 8. But here in this promise, this prophecy, that national conquering, God will say, have no fear. Someone is coming who will conquer. He won't come and do that right away. Why? Chapter 9, verse 8, you are rebellious. You are rebellious, Jacob. You are arrogant and wicked. And it turns out, chapter 10, verses 5 to 11, as Assyria is, Israel, so are you. That needs to be dealt with first. So coming judgment first on Israel and the nations, then in a later time, now, chapter 10, verse 20, in that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob, this language should just pop off the page now, the remnant, the survivors, will be will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and truth. In other words, their trust will finally be in the Lord. 
21, a remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. And look at this, destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts will make a full end is decreed in the midst of all the earth. So much here we could comment on, but look at verse 22. This is the verse Paul quotes in Romans. Only a remnant of Israel will return. You see it there? So not all will survive the judgment. Only a few carry forward because not all Israel was Israel. Because not all Israel had faith in Messiah like a true Israelite should have. Thus, not all who descend from Israel belong to Israel. Romans 9, 6 and 7. And not are all children of Abraham just because their ethnicity flows from Abraham's line. No. And look at it here. Isaiah 10. Though Israel is many, like grains of sand on the sea. Verse 22. Grains of sand on the sea. Only a remnant. The righteous remnant within Israel will be saved. Now before we turn back to Romans, consider again. Look at the end of verse 22. Destruction is decreed. Overflowing with righteousness. This is what is deserved for unbelief and rebellion. Verse 23, for the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. In other words, full judgment is coming, Israel. It is coming. This is the point here. This is destruction decreed, just as the Lord declared and carried out elsewhere. Think in the Old Testament. And really, as he should have and could have on Israel. Consider God, we were in Joshua, consider his wiping out entirely the nations in the conquest because of their wickedness and evil. And we looked at that. And of course, consider the utter destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis 18 and 19. Such judgment was always and is always reserved for wickedness and ungodliness, for the rebel, the unbeliever. The issue in Israel, of course, for most of its history, however, and continuing today, is that Israel were and are no different in action from the pagan nations. We know that, don't we? In the Old Testament, it's demonstrated sometimes they're even more wicked than the pagan nations. And beloved, we need to be reminded of this today. So many people want to throw around fault and blame geopolitically. Let this be clear. Israel, as a nation, is wicked right now. They are God's chosen people. But their wickedness remains. And and what's the most wicked thing Israel can do right now? Not embrace Messiah. Now before you run out there saying I said something I didn't say, they are facing a force that is an unfathomable evil right now. Capital H. Right? They are that. So let it be clearly said. But Israel remains wicked in exile, in rebellion, in rejection of their Messiah. And this is what we need to see. It remains. Has the word of God failed? I look at Israel today and what's going on. Has the word of God failed? This is the point. What we should say first and foremost is, I need to be very careful here, what they deserve is what you and I deserve before a holy God is destruction. Right? But they don't. God preserving his people. Turn to Isaiah 1. You're still in Isaiah. Israel is wicked. How wicked? Let's pick it up in verse 2. This is the indictment right out of the gate in Isaiah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. In other words, here is a cosmic condemnation on my people. For the Lord has spoken. Children 
have I reared and brought up. These are my own children, says Yahweh, but they've rebelled against me. Verse 3, the ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know my people, do not understand. Did you see what he just did there, Yahweh? The ox and the donkey have more righteousness than Israel. A sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly, they have forsaken the Lord, they've despised the Holy One of Israel, they're utterly estranged. What language? Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick, the whole heart faint, from the sole of the foot even to the head. There's no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They're not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire in your very presence. Foreigners, Israel, devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. Just take that in for a moment. The sin and the judgment associated with pagans normally, but what do you see here in Isaiah 2 to 1, 2 to 8? This is going on in Israel. And God indicts it here in Israel. But in light of this, and this is nothing short again of the mercy of God, not to mention his hesed love, look at verse 9. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like what? Sodom and become like Gomorrah. That's what we deserved, the Israelite would say, but we haven't. We haven't. Back to Romans 9. In verse 29, as we close, as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Beloved, this is nothing short of God's preservation on his chosen people. It's always God's preserving, protecting hand that we need because as the nations... As Israel, as you and I, we are in judgment. But, and let us not miss this last detail here in such a key section. Look at it again in verse 29. As Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Maybe you caught it. What is slightly different here? It's taken from Isaiah 1.9, but what Paul wants to draw our attention to is one particular aspect of this prophecy in Isaiah 1.9. It was the Lord in Isaiah leaving a few survivors, but here in verse 29, if the Lord of hosts had not left us what? Offspring, seed, singular. You have a King James or a legacy standard. This brings it through, rightly, the one seed. God preserves, right, an offspring, one. So God's preservation is not just to keep a remnant of faithful ones. He does that, said elsewhere but here to provide the only real and true faithful one, the seed. The one from Israel for the true Israel, but also for all the called out ones. Jew first, also the Greek. Paul indicates that here, the seed in which all the faithful offspring would be found. Praise God. Such is the crown jewel of the riches of his glory, and it is, of course, Jesus Christ. Seed, the jewel, the Messiah. He is God's authority in heaven and earth. He's the only one that could bear God's wrath for the remnant. Christ, in whom all of God's people are found. And Jesus Christ is the only one that even enables a remnant to be preserved. All glory be to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these truths in your word. Lord, give us, again, minds and hearts, not only to see what we've seen today, but now to understand, to sink deep and 
and now to keep considering as we go out into our week your very holy words. Lord, we thank you for them, the riches of your glory in Christ. It's in his name we pray and now we sing. Amen.